In a monumental week for the sport of tennis, the season's second major commenced in Paris, but stealing the show was the Naomi Osaka media saga, as well as another press incident that caused a fellow major champion to withdraw from the French capital. This is Breakpoint Podcast. I'm your host, Val Febo, and joining me as he always does to talk about the second major of the season at Roland Garros is Joel Frucci. Joel, how are you going, mate? Not too bad, Val. Good to see your face on the screen again. But, uh, of course, it goes without saying that we are back in lockdown in Melbourne town for the fourth time. Um, so, yeah, I guess we're going as well as uh, we can. But um, how are you, mate? You, you keeping busy watching uh, watching the French? Yeah, I have. Um, the late nights haven't really agreed with me. But now that we're in lockdown, I guess there's really <laughs> not much else to do. So, yeah, well done, Victorian government. Fourth yeah. time. Absolutely fantastic on your part. So... Yeah, um, let's move away from the politics chat because I think we discussed enough of that last year. But um, Joel, Roland Garros yeah, has... Yeah, we'll clear of that. Yeah, no, we should on this show. But um, Roland Garros has commenced. And look, the Naomi, the Naomi Osaka, it's a, it's a very hard name to say, to be honest. When you're trying to say it quickly, it's not easy. So, Naomi uh, Osaka. Naomi, yeah. Well, all right, you just debunked <laughs> me right there. I was trying to make up for my little stumble. But um, no, so her media saga that has really taken a stranglehold on the on the beginning of this tournament um and for all of those who were not aware she essentially she tweeted and i'll read the statement from from last week and what she tweeted she said hope you're all doing well i'm writing this to say that i'm not going to do any press during roland garros i've often felt that people have no regard for athletes mental health and that this rings very true when i see a press conference or partake in one we're often sat there and asked questions that we've been asked multiple times before or asked questions that bring doubt into our minds. And I'm not just going to subject myself to people that doubt me. And it goes on and on and on about mental health and saying, if I'm going to be fined, then, you know, oh, well, I hope it goes to a mental health charity. So then Roland Garros did fine her for her first, after her first round. And then there was a lot of anger towards her actually not going to her press conference. And she tweeted, anger is a lack of understanding and change makes people uncomfortable. The anger continued. And then she has now withdrawn from Roland Garros. And just saying this is a, isn't a situation I ever intended when I posted a few days ago. I think now the best thing for the tournament, the other players and my well-being is that I withdraw so that everyone can get back to focusing on the tennis going on in Paris. I never wanted to be a distraction and accept that my timing was not ideal and my message could have been clearer. More importantly, I would never trivialize mental health or use long-term lightly. The truth is that I've suffered long bouts of depression since the US Open in 2018, and I've had a really to hard time coping with that. Anyone that knows me knows I'm introverted, and anyone that has seen me at tournaments will note that I'm often wearing my headphones as that helps dull my social anxiety. And she continues to go on about the tennis press, saying that they've always been kind, and she apologized to the cool journos that she's hurt, she was already feeling vulnerable and anxious, so she thought it was better to exercise self-care and skip the press conferences, um, announced it preemptively because she um, because she does feel like the rules are outdated in parts. But And she did apologise to the tournament as well. But Joel, look, that is the statement that should have come out before the tournament. And, um, and you can... Um, rebut me on this, whatever you like. But Naomi Osaka, to come out and attack the media the way that she did before the tournament, I don't know, A, who's advising her? Because 
I'm not sure where the management comes in there because you would think that 99 managers out of 100 or media advisors would say bad idea. Two, if you're that depressed, why aren't you take some self care if you need to? If you, if you're feeling vulnerable, there's nothing wrong with that. Admit that you're feeling vulnerable. You should be allowed to speak up, and you should and and people people are supportive. We've seen after what after with the withdrawal from the tournament that people have been supportive. This should have been the message. And she said, I'm sorry my message wasn't clearer, but I think in this situation it had to be to come out and attack the media the way that she did in the ignorant manner in which she did it. I thought it was really poor form and whoever was managing her should get a real slap on the wrist because it wasn't right. And there's so many other things that she could have done. If, if you're not feeling that well, don't attack the media, don't miss press conference and then have all this bravado. But Actually take some time off like you've done now. Take some time off to recover, to focus on the things that make you happy. And maybe seek someone out. Iga Sriontek is 18 years old, Joel, and she hired a sports psychologist. And she's a Grand Slam champion. And I'm pretty sure they're friends as well. Exactly. Ash Barty, Joel, took a year off. She took a complete year off playing tennis. And look at where that's got her. She's world number one. And she's playing well. She can talk about these situations, but banning the media and outlet and pretty much saying that they're outdated, I don't like that because how how do tennis players get paid, Joel? How do they get paid? Yeah, well, it's it's, it's media rights, TV rights, broadcast rights, sponsorship. Yeah, um, yeah. and that, that comes through. Yeah, that comes comes through exposure and comes through the press. Um, and look, I guess. Before I say anything more, it, we should preface this by saying, um, you know, yes, all mental health matters, and mm. I don't doubt that Naomi has her her issues. It's pretty. It's always been quite clear um, and evident that yes, she is introverted. She's a little bit awkward, um, you know, when she goes about her, her public speaking um, and all that sort of thing. So I actually look. I, I don't doubt that she's having some issues. I think that's. That's all fine and well. Look, I definitely agree that the messaging from the beginning was was pretty poor in the way it was was conveyed, and was certainly, I think, misguided. Um, but I, I think when look, what what kind of griped me was was when she tweeted about um, change making people uncomfortable. I mean, for me, and you know, I guess my own experience with you know a time when I was sort of feeling a, a little bit down. Um, the, the biggest thing for me was that I needed to put myself out of my comfort zone and actually change. Because the thing is, if you're going through some issues and you're sort of not liking the way that the world is treating you per se, you can't rely on everyone else to change. You need to make some changes yourself. Um, you know, I, I definitely agree that there is a certain sort of level or or element of, of treatment that, that people should be affording you. Everyone deserves to be respected. Um, but I think for Naomi to, to sort of come out and, and sort of, I guess, direct that, I don't know, to, for lack of a better term, that kind of frustration on the, on the press, I thought was wrong. Um, when her sister Mari came out and posted that statement on, on Reddit saying that, um, she was upset by a family member, t- uh, telling her that, uh, she was uh, bad on clay or whatever it was said and that Naomi was quite upset by that. That tells me that it goes beyond... A press problem for her. Yeah. Um, so, so what that what that says to me is that Naomi needs to maybe step back a bit 
Um, and she has the, the resources and the, the means and the capabilities to reach out to someone and say, look, can you help me fix this? Because I think, I think that's the way forward for her. I don't think she can just, um, or anyone really, can, can just say point a finger to the press and say, oh, yeah, I, hate doing, I hate doing press conferences and, you know, the questions that the media ask me get me down. Um, you know, if, if you're a professional athlete and if you're uh, as high up on the tour as someone like Naomi, um, you, know, you can't be going on like that forever. You need to kind of change your ways to to a, a large extent, really. I was going to say to an extent, but to a large extent. Um, you know, again, I'll refer back to, and obviously I'm, I'm not Naomi, but different people, different positions um, and different reasons. But um, again, the, the thing that I found was, um, you know, you can't just sit back and wait for things to change. You need to actively grab something, grab the issue by the horns um, self-identify, seek out someone that can help you and move forward from there. And I think that's what she really needs to do. And she can clearly do that. And, you know, I hope she does because she's a fantastic player. We want to see her playing tennis. She's clearly, um, you know, we, there's a lot of talk about the height of the throne of Serena Williams or whatever. I think in a like-for-like like sense, I think she's clearly the one, clearly. And we know that now. She's winning Grand Slam. She plays great tennis. Okay, maybe Clay might not be her best surface, but we, we know how good she is and we want to see her playing well. We want to see her in a good headspace. So, you know, I, I hope someone tells her that, that, you know, there's a level of this that you need to take upon yourself, take away from tennis, work on, and then come back. Yeah, I think you're right, Joel. And, and taking time off is the best thing for her. It takes her out of the spotlight. She can work on herself and we do want to see her back because mental health is such a serious thing in this day and age. It really is. But, you can't, as you said, you can't just come out and attack the press like that. You can't just, imagine you're an oncologist, Joel, and you say, oh, no, nah, I, 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 it gives me too much stress to tell my patient that he's got stage four cancer. It gives me too much stress. I'm not doing it. That's essentially what this is because it's part of your job description. There's players ranked in the 500s or 600s that would kill to do media and that would kill to get their name out there and get a little bit more exposure and tell their story. And that's where like media needs athletes and media needs news athletes and talent need the media as well to tell their story and get their they, story they need each other exactly they need each other the press the press needs players because without players the press don't have a job but also without the press no one knows who the players are exactly that's, right that's that's a reality no one's telling their story so it's a bit of a give and take relationship really it is they work in tandem together to get the best out of each other and i think that's what the beautiful part of sport is so we do hope Naomi comes out of this on top. We really do because it, she is one of the most promising talents in tennis. Her and Ash Barty are about to have a rivalry that we feel as though is going to span over a decade and what they're about oh, to yeah, go through. And we can't wait to see the matches that they're going to play against each other. And we hope that Naomi can come out of this. And before we do move on from it, Joel, I one person who I think she should seek out in this time if she's feeling any sort of uh, vulnerability is Novak Djokovic for all of his flaws he relishes the opportunity to come out and prove everybody wrong and to to defy yeah. the doubters if she feels like she's being doubted and if she feels like she doubts herself Novak Djokovic is one of the most mentally resilient people on tour so absolutely and also just just to butt in Val on Novak as well when you hear about his preparation and the things that he does off the court can you name a base that he leaves unchecked? Like that guy just covers everything. It's incredible. No, and as we spoke with Craig O'Shaughnessy last year, he said that 
Novak Djokovic does band work for what two hours, three hours, and then he'll go and hit on the court for three hours. He's that regimented in the way that he does things, but mentally as well, he's all about his you know his sort of uh, the the gratitude stuff. He he says he loves doing all of that sort of stuff, so that could help Naomi. And for all of the things that we've said about Djokovic on this show and all of the things that he's done over the last year, you can't deny that mentally he's one of the best ever, if not the best ever. Yeah. So I yeah, think that's yeah, one sure. person and, that she can seek out. Yeah, absolutely. And as an extension to that as well, um, I think I think it, it would almost go without saying that, you know, ATP or WTA, um, I don't think there's a, a player on that tour Certainly in the in the upper echelons, in the top top ten, top fifteen, top twenty, that if a Naomi was to reach out to someone, that they wouldn't be receptive and try to help in whatever way they could. So, look, bottom line, I just hope that that she leans on every possible person to uh, to better any challenges or address any challenges that she's facing and better herself as a person. Because again, certainly can do that, and obviously it would be an absolute. Uh, it'd be a, a real tragedy, a huge loss to the sport, if if, uh, if not. Yeah, it certainly would be. So we hope Naomi is okay, and um, be sure if you are listening to this to contact Lifeline or Beyond Blue as well if this is triggering for you. So um, no, we do we do hope Naomi Osaka is okay mentally, and we hope that she does seek out all the right avenues um, to get better and to get herself back on track. And if she needs to take time off, take time off. It's you know it's it's essentially like you're working in real life and you're just taking some stress leave or a personal day or some personal weeks, it's fine. It's okay not to be okay. And to feel vulnerable, you just have to work on yourself and make sure that you're giving yourself the best chance at recovery. So good luck to Naomi Osaka. We hope she's okay, but then it was just a situation handled incorrectly. So fingers crossed we can all move on from this and focus on the tennis. But before we do get to some tennis, Joel, um, and we actually haven't we haven't said who our guest is going to be tonight either because that has been the uh, that has been <laughs> that's been the big um, the big talk or well, that's been sort of the big thing for us today that we're having Paul McNamee on the show. Um, so very excited to talk to him and what he's going to bring um, to his show. His new book, uh, Welcome to the Dance: Master Tennis to Master or Master Clay to Master Tennis. So we're very excited to talk to him about that and what made him write the book because Clay. Is something very foreign to a lot of Australians growing up, so we'll ask him about that as well as a lot of other things, including the Naomi Osaka uh, saga, I guess. Um, but Petra Kvitova, yeah, saga. the Os- yeah, the Osaka saga. That's hard to say. <laughs> Osaka saga. Osaka. Naomi Osaka saga. Say it ten times quick, Joel. Um, anyway, moving right along. <laughs> yes, uh, Petra Kvitova. She's fallen. Um, doing some press, and all of a sudden she's out of Roland Garros as well, Joel. That. You just cannot make this stuff up, can you? All the stuff that's happened with Naomi Osaka, and now Petra Kvitova has taken a tumble, doing some press, uh, doing some media after her first round win at Roland Garros, and she's had to withdraw from the tournament. That is the epitome of devastating. Yeah, yeah well, uh, yeah, look, it's incredibly, uh, incredibly unlucky for, for Petra. Um, and she's had her fair share of physical battles down the journey as well, physical and mental as well. Um, as we know, real serious challenges that, um, you know, you wouldn't wish upon your worst enemy. So hopefully she's all right in the long run. Another player that we want to see up and firing um, on the on the tour and, and seems like such a great person as well. So fingers crossed 
uh, for Petra. But what it really does do is open up that that bottom section of the draw on the women's side um, even more. And I don't know about you, Val, but looking at that part of it, um, you'd almost have to say that, that looking at who's in there and with the form she's in, this is, is probably Arena Sabalenka's half to lose, I reckon. Yeah, I do agree, Joel. I think that uh, the, the tournament has opened up for her with Simona Hallett pulling out of the um, the entirety of the event as the world number the world number three, and then you've got um, Naomi Osaka going out as well. Um, I, I it's very hard to see another result in which Sabalenka doesn't make the final. And I've picked before the tournament an Ash Barty Arena Sabalenka final and Barty winning it. And that probably looks the most likely outcome now with Naomi Osaka going out and Simona Halep not being at the event. So it's um it's it's an interesting one. And look, looking at the at the draw, you're looking down the bottom half, and there's just there's so many holes there in which Sabalenka should be able to exploit. So if you look at the if you look at the draw, Serena's down there. Um, Danielle Collins, Alina Viznina, Victoria Azarenka's there defeating Svetlana Kuznetsova in the first mm. round. Um, but Sabalenka... It's a, big, it's a big hitting quarter. It is. Well, you've got Azarenka and Sabalenka who will face off in the fourth round should they both get there. Madison Keys is there as well. Um, and then you've got Serrano Sestaya. She she's been around for, for a little bit, but... You know, you don't know what yeah. she's going to be able to do for, you know, to get through to a major semi-final or a final. Belinda Bencic, Daria Kasatkina, all there, as well as um, 2019 finalist Marketa Von Drusova. So there's, yeah, there, there's a lot of holes there in which Sabalenka and Azarenka and Serena could possibly exploit. I'm not sure on Serena yet, but Madison Keys as well, former semi-finalist at Roland Garros. So it, it's very exciting to have a look at. Um, and, and, it's a hard one to predict, but you think we just based on form alone, you're right. I think Arena Sabalenka is that one to to beat Joel. Yeah, no, I think so. I think she is. Yep. Um, and looking at the uh, looking at the men's draw, Joel, it's I think the first time in history that we've seen Roger, Rafa, and Novak all on the same side of a draw. Roger and Novak are scheduled to take. Uh, to take each other on in the quarterfinals with Rafa to meet Djokovic in the semis uh, should they all progress to those stages. But what did you make of Roger Federer's return to Grand Slam tennis? Uh, straight sets win over Denis Istomin. Probably wasn't expected to be, to be quite honest with with his previous matches, but what did you make of it? Oh, yeah. I mean, look, if you're if you're Roger, you'd have to be pretty happy, all things considered. Um, you know, first up, Roland Garros, uh, least favoured surface, uh, coming up against, let's be honest, um, a, a, a tricky customer in, in Dennis Isterman. We know what he can do at Grand Slams. I, I draw back to uh, that Australian Open where he, he knocked out Novak Djokovic, albeit Novak wasn't at his best by any means. Um, but he still did the job. And, um, you know, we know that he's capable of, of taking out top players. So I think for, for Roger to come up against Dennis and, uh, and to do the job in, in three sets, um, you know, get some, get some minutes on the court, um, winning straight sets against a you know a, a difficult opponent, um, and then come off again, um, refresh, go again. Uh, you know, I think he'd be delighted with that. Yeah, hundred percent. And uh, he'll play Marin Cilic in the second round, which is a mouth-watering matchup considering the clashes that they've had, and both been in the top ten at the same time and played in Grand Slam semifinals and real matches of note. But 
Um, I think Rafael Nadal looked okay against Alexi Popperin, who played really well against him. Popperin led 5-2 in the third set and boasted two set points at uh, serving for it at 5-3. So Nadal to play Richard Gasquet, who he's never lost against and hasn't dropped a set against since 2008. So things looking pretty good for Rafa there. <laughs> well, um, and then you've got Yannick Sinner as well. Seven Italians in, in, uh, in, the, in the second round of the French Open, which I find absolutely remarkable, the turnaround there. Um, Dominic team falling, Joel. That was that one was probably unexpected as well as Andre Rublev. So team falling from two sets <laughs> up against Pablo Andujar, who was the man that beat Roger Federer um, two weeks ago Andujar. in Geneva. Very nice, Joel. That was beautiful. Um, and then uh, uh, Andre Rublev falling to Jan Leonard Struff. The right Struff. Yes. Another yep. um, big fellow. <laughs> Honestly, wouldn't expect that on any surface, but um, especially, especially clay. Uh, so, yeah, boy, boy, he's gone. Boy, just like that. Um, but we will talk more about the Roland Garros draws after we speak to our very special guest, Paul McNamee, who is just about to join us, y'all. So stay tuned for more Roland Garros chat following this one with Paul McNamee. And he does join us now, a true legend of the sport in this country, not just Australia, around the world. A former singles, world number 24, two titles and a semi-final at the Australian Open, as well as being a doubles world number one, four Grand Slam titles to his name, including a mixed doubles title on t- a mixed doubles Grand Slam title on top of that. A two-time Davis Cup champion, a coach, and now the author of Welcome to the Dance, Master Clay to Master Tennis. His name is Paul McNamee. Paul, thank you so much for joining us on Breakpoint. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on. How are you going? I'm good, Val. Yeah, look, very excited that uh, Roland Garros is up and running. Uh, a lot of storylines and, you know, the Aussies have been in the thick of it as well. So it's, you know, I'm just, this is just my favourite tournament to watch. Yeah. It has been a fantastic start the first three days. One of the unique Grand Slams where there are three days to start the uh, to start the opening round. But I want to talk to you about your book before we do get into the tournament. Welcome to the dance, Master Clay to Master Tennis. You can get it at all good book retailers and it's an amazing initiative. I do love it because Australians, they don't grow up on clay. It's not something that we we see regularly until or until we hit probably our late teens, mid to late teens. We're not trained on it unless we start going to Europe at the age of 12, 13 and playing regular tournaments over there. So what's what made you write the book and what was the sole reason behind it? Well, because of the magic that, that that's there on a clay court and the mysteries that you need to unravel if you're going to master clay and ultimately to master tennis, because it's like learning how to play chess. You know, you can't learn how to play chess on a on a on a checkers board where the moves are linear. You need to you need to understand all the pieces that you've got on a chessboard if you want to play chess. The same with clay; you have to understand how to move, how to slide, how to control that so you don't fall over. How to use a slice and be able to play a drop shot with disguise and not have a two-hander. Oh, one hand is, you know, you're going to slice, you're going to hit a drop shot now. See, all of these nuances play out on a clay court. The use of angles, you know, Rafa hits all these winners through the sideline. The hardcore players hit all their winners through the baseline, understanding that difference and and going on that journey of discovery. And and I was enchanted by that journey, you know, from the first time I went to Paris as an 18-year-old, you know, just completely out of my depth, on and off the court, just looking at the fashion and the, the, the martini, the way people were drinking and moving and dressing and and the architecture. And I'm just, just my eyes wide open as an 18-year-old, you know, and, and getting 
absolutely humiliated when I played at Roland Garros in the qualifying. So from those beginnings, you know, you either just run to run to Wimbledon and run to that little, you know, British thing where goes back to our upbringing where you feel comfortable, uh, or do you embrace and say, hey, you know what? Wow, what a journey. So I went on that journey, and I'm still on that journey, and, you know, so that's it's joyous for me. And I do love what you produce on Twitter as well. I think I remember your, your top 10 clay court villas to watch to watch matches on and you had the picturesque Monte Carlo up there. But what what tell us about your first experience on the red dirt and what what you found when you first stepped on court and started playing points and, and just the differences between yourself and what your opponent was able to do. Well, you know, I was actually the number one ranked junior in Australia, which is not that bad. Um, you know, and, I, you know, I won the juniors at the Australian Open. Not that bad either. This is singles, okay? You know, so yeah. I was decent. But, you know, I played qualifying at, at the French Open for the first time, um, first time I'd set foot in Europe. And I played a guy over 40 years of age from South America. And I'm thinking, why is this guy even still playing? I mean, you know, I'm, I'm 18. I'm number one junior in Australia, probably one of the best juniors in the world. You know, okay, I haven't played on clay. Big deal. It's the same size as any other tennis court, right? Like 78 feet by 36 feet in the old language, 27 feet for singles, you know. And, you know, okay, maybe I haven't got a few shots that that he's got, but I'm so young, I'm so fit. You know, I I can just beat last him if I need to. But, of course... You know, as soon as I tried to do that, he'd throw in a drop shot to end the point. So he didn't let me tire him. And then I was the one doing all the running. He was completely dictating. Like it happens on a squash court. If someone's good, they just stand in the middle and you just, you know, it doesn't matter that what your physique is if someone knows their stuff. And, I, you know, and I was just, I only won three games. And it hit me, he would have just enjoyed, you know, taking me down, you know. Because I was, I was trying to serve volley, you know. You know, I'd copy John Newcomb, this sort of style. You know, forget it. So I then went on a journey where I just had to transform my game, transform my game completely. But, yeah, my first experience on clay was humiliating. But staying in Paris to see what the hell, you know, a, a great city of the world looked like, you know. <laughs> I'm sensing, Paul, there's a certain romance about this story. It's a, it's a love story made in Paris. Well, yeah, except there was no romance when I'm 18, you know, having, <laughs> having that sort of Catholic boys school upbringing. There's no, there's no romance, romance first time in Europe. You, you're way out of your depth, okay? Like, you know, give me a few years to, to catch up on what life's about, okay? <laughs> Um, it's it is it, it, it it's a genuinely unbelievable uh, surface to, to watch and and look uh, Paul you've actually transformed my opinion about clay I remember a t- I think it was a Twitter exchange that we had probably about two or three years ago and I was still you know sort of developing I, I love watching tennis always have but I've always sort of and when I was younger and even still now or towards this time I was sort of sh- stopping during the clay court season and you're like all right I'll watch a bit of this match. And then you stopped just because it would go on so long and it became a bit more monotonous. But after what you said, you said it's just, it's such a poem. It's such a, it's, it's a journey to watch a match and watch the problem solving unravel throughout. And it actually is because you've got to, you've got to actually work on what your opponent does because points aren't ended quickly. And it's why the big servers have always struggled. You've got to be able to rally and sort of work your opponent out and work through. So is that what you learned over time? 
Yeah, well, at one point, one single point can be a microcosm of the whole match, whereas you can play someone who matches up really well with you and you, you both got good forehands and backhands, you match up and, you know, you both can hit angles, you're both strong, you're both fit. But in the end, in the end, the biggest shot wins. Because in the end, you know, if you've got a king forehand, it will overwhelm a great backhand. I mean, as good as, you know, Vavrinka's backhand is or Gasquet's, it's not as good as Nadal's forehand. In the end, the forehand is king and the backhand is queen. So what you're able to do in a clay court, if you understand the game, is understand how you, in the end, you can dominate with your with your big shot. And that's the one that you, that whereby you can win. Now, you talked about long points. Well, not necessarily because... They're now talking a lot, and Craig O'Shaughnessy talks a lot about it. You know, he's got brain game tennis. Well, the stats are that Rafa's starting to play f- first strike tennis, which is more the vogue now, you know, because with the technology now, you've got a ball, you can just rip a winner. And the Rafa's points aren't as long um, compared to some other players. So he's try- he's making the point that um, that the points aren't as long as you would think. And, and, and but there's a reason for that, which I discuss in the book, is that it's because if you know your stuff on clay, you know that Rafa's got the biggest shot on the court. Therefore, if you play that way, he will overwhelm you with his forehand. Once once he gets that ball on his forehand and he just sits out there and he set the dining table up, he's got the glass of red, life's good. He's going to take control of the point. You know, He's going to take your date out. Is that good, right? He's got it all. He's laughing, right? So once you understand that, if I'm playing that play, I can't play that style because... He's going to overwhelm me because well, me, he's got a bigger shot. Therefore, you have to get in first before you let him happen. So what you do is you take more risks. You you go for a first strike shot. So that will shorten the point. It's not because uh, he's playing first strike tennis. It's because you have the fear of his forehand, which makes you go for too much and make an error, and that which forces the errors. And, and, and ultimately, tennis is about forced errors and not about unforced errors are more about winners. And that's what you learn on a clay court. It's not it's not about the two stats you get on TV, which are winners and unforced errors. They're not relevant. It's forced errors. Who's controlling the chessboard? Who's going to dominate with their weapon on the big points? That's where the match is won and lost. It's not a 15 all. It's a break point. And who's got the weapons to dominate and the ability to understand that? That's... That's the, the joy of clay. And that's the chessboard where it's all laid out. And there's nowhere to hide. If you've got a weakness and your opponent knows your stuff, he will find it. He will find it right away. Like last night, Ash Barty, you know, she was playing, you know, started playing too much, boom, 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 had to start mixing it up because Pera loved that. So but Ash is able to do that and she manages her injury and the whole thing. But I'm just I'm just giving an insight into the the way that a clay court match uh, plays out, and you you know if 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 you, if you understand that you you when you watch it, one point can be joyous. Just seeing one point unfold and what happens there. Yep. No. Well, well said, Paul. It's uh, yeah, fascinating to hear the insight. Um, and uh, well, what's interesting is that uh, obviously, as Bell said earlier, a lot of Australian players don't really. Uh, grow up with clay. So a lot of the time when we see them go to Europe, they sometimes maybe seem to struggle a little bit or, or lag behind, you know, the, the Italians or the, the Spaniards or the, or the French. As I, so like, as I did, what, yeah. what can, yeah. So what can, what can Australia do moving forward? Um, I guess so our players can, um, 
I guess, close the gap in that sense on, on clay courts. Well, any kid who wants to play has got to get on clay. Find one, drive to one. You have to get on clay. You can't learn to play properly unless you get on clay. When I go to Melbourne Park and I help a little bit there and, and I say to the kids who wants to have a hit, you know, and you want to go on clay, I know I'd rather be on hard. I've got to, I want to play with that kid. <laughs> I'll only play with a kid who wants to go on clay. I think, well, cause you, well good luck on the hard. You won't learn anything there. You need to go to clay. See, unfortunately, Tennis Australia has put in some clay courts around Australia, including in Queensland, where Ash Barty has spent time. Hello. But there's less than 20 good clay courts in the whole of Australia. Less than 20. So, and, and for example, in New South Wales and Queensland, I mean, the court, the, you know, the, the ant bed courts have produced decent players, Roy Emerson, Rod Laver, you know, they've got, um, you know, over 20 grand slams between them. <laughs> uh, and the and the and the and the loam surface in New South Wales is Sydney that produced Hode and Rosewell and and, and and Jack Crawford and a lot of other people. Um, they're pretty much gone. They're extinct. So, you know, we're talking about dancing and the book. You know, my book is you know, you know, you know, welcome to the dance. It's 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 how to make a tennis ball dance on a clay court and or in any court. But the dancing stopped in Australia in the late seventies. It stopped. The dancing stopped. The music, the music stopped. So our, our golden generation ended with the demise of clay. And you know, I asked I asked Ken Rosewell about that. And you know, and, you know, and somebody listening, oh, who's Ken Rosewell? You know, he, he was the youngest guy ever to win Roland Garros until Max Willander and then Rafa. And he was the oldest guy until last year to won Roland Garros. Okay, he, the chapters of Aussie was pretty good. All right. And Ken said, yeah. Well, did you do you think that that the demise of Australian tennis had anything? to do with the the loss of clay. He said, 100%. Now, here's a guy who was a genius as a player. I mean, <laughs> you know, a genius, right? Um, and this is what's happened. We've still got onto cars, some onto car in Melbourne, but it's not it's not the real thing. You know, it's coarse, the bounces aren't good, it's too dry in summer. I had that yeah. kind of upbringing, but it's not the same as the real deal. I mean, European clay and American clay, heart true, the green clay, I mean, they're... They're just another level. They're world class, and and there's so few of them in Australia. I mean, when I was over in Western Australia, when I went there for Hotman Cup, they they had never had a clay court in Western Australia, never. Uh, now, they've never produced a Davis Cup player either. Okay, now that's a pretty good sporting state, WA. Hey, you know, hmm. you look at different sports. It's a pretty good sport, pretty good state, right? No Davis Cup player. These are the fundamental problems in, in Australian tennis, which Tennis Australia are trying to address and sub-clubs are trying to address too. Royal State Theory just put in four green clay courts, Hartree, which are the best for Australian conditions that you can get. So it's slow. But you need a hero or a heroine, and that's going to be Ash Barty. I mean, our renaissance on clay is going to be built off the back of Ash Barty because our guys, I mean, Nick Kyrgios doesn't even want to go and play there on clay. He can play on it, actually, but he doesn't want to. He'd care less if he never set foot on a clay court again. I'd say I care less if I ever set foot on a hard court again. So there's your difference in mentality. Okay, okay, Nick, fine. But I'm different. I don't think like that. Yep. I think I think that's the pity. That's I, the pity for me that he'll never get to experience that joy. I agree. I, I 100% agree. And you see, like, even Leighton Hewitt, you know, made the final of the Australian Open, won Wimbledon, won the US Open. Only ever made the quarterfinals at Roland Garros. 
He only yeah. ever won two yeah. clay court titles, and I think that he was yeah. he's the last Australian to win a clay court title on the men's side of the game in Houston in two thousand and nine. It's technically Richard Fromberg. It's technically Richard Fromberg, yes. but yeah. but. Leighton did have that notable win over Guga, over Gustavo Coyden in Davis Cup in Brazil. So Leighton, yes, but he was not a great clay court player. I'll call it, okay? <laughs> <laughs> I might be getting a phone call soon. But, you know, heck of a tennis player. I mean, number one in the world, you know. But, um, you know, he didn't have that in his upbringing either. He did well. But compared to his hard court and grass court results, no. No, but, you know... I'm trying to awaken the 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 you know the messages and the, and the lessons that you get on a clay court because you know unless you spend time on it you're not going to understand it and you know and there that's the pity. Yep, a hundred percent agree. And Paul, moving on to Roland Garros, it has commenced. Your favourite tournament of the year. What have you made of the event so far? And I guess it would be remiss of us if we didn't ask you about the Naomi Osaka saga that we've uh, already addressed on the show. And what you made of that as well? Yeah, well, I mean, I love any anything that happens on clay. So it just happens, you know, the the mecca is Roland Garros, and I was lucky enough to to have some good <laughs> some good wins on that court. Yeah, um, the, the court Philippe Chatrier. Um, so all my best wins were pretty much on clay as a player. But you know, so I I do think the tournament's amazing and. Um, you know, we've already seen some, you know, some great matches. I mean, there, there, there's there's a women's match the other night, which I thought was going to be a great match. Was the uh, the Ostapenko and um, Ostapenko and Kinen was just pff, incredible women's match for three sets. I mean, you've got a former winner against last year's runner-up. I mean, they were just toe to toe, and they're both feisty, combative, big personalities. You know. It was like a UFC fight, that one. Seriously. I mean, it was so good. I think Serena and Buzanescu tonight is going to be a cracker. You know, I don't know when you're playing this podcast, though. So, you know, sorry. If I'm... <laughs> It'll go out it's straight up, so man. that's all good. Okay, okay, okay. Um, you know, so it's, you know, it's, you know, you know, Alex Popperin did well, uh, especially in the third set against Rafa. I mean, he was... He was never going to win that match, but he's got game because he's got a big serve, big forehand. Obviously, spends a lot of time. He see, he spent more time in Europe because he's been in Europe. Alex De Menor, you know, does he speak English? No, I'm joking. I mean, Alex De Menor has spent a lot of time <laughs> in Spain, right? I mean, he's, he's bilingual. He's, his Spanish is just as good as his English. I mean, so, you know, here are two guys that do spend time on clay, who do respect it, and, you know, are very, very good players. It's just Alex hasn't got the weapons, whereas Alex Popperin has got weapons. So on clay in the long run, you know, I like Alex's game more. Um, I was, I was Popperin, Popperin's game more because he's got the, the serve and the forehand. Demonor, though, I think he's going to be... I think they're both going to be a top 10 player, by the way. So we've got two amazing guys there, and who knows with Nick. But... Um, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I think it's it's been it's been a fascinating tournament. It, it's been a little bit overshadowed, obviously, by Naomi, and that that's that's that story's going to seems like it's going to run for a long time. Um, someone said if there's a story about the media, it's going to run for a long time because it's judging you know the media's role and the Grand Slam's role in the whole thing. I just feel that. Um, 
Naomi admitted she could have handled it better and I think the Grand Slam board possibly could have handled it better as well. But it's very difficult when you don't know the facts. I mean, you know, if a player says, I'm not going to miss a media conference and then you try to talk to them and they won't talk to you and then she misses it, you could, of course she's going to get fined and probably more than you would have thought. So I, I'm really saddened that there wasn't a dialogue there and um, and it has shone a light on, on mental issues in sport. We know, you know, with AFL, you know, there's a lot of depression that happens. So it's a very, very important issue. And so my sympathies are to Naomi uh, to get better and, and also... You know, we all need to get better in, in 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 understanding this issue a lot better because it's it's real. Here's a woman who's the most successful female in terms of commercial endorsements, the most successful female athlete in the history of the sport. She made fifty five million dollars last year. I don't know if that's US dollars or Australian dollars. It's still good money, <laughs> um, and yet she's coping with 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 depression. So it just shows you that. Things have changed, and I think the social media landscape is adding, you know, it, it's, I think, far more relevant than than the mainstream media. But people are not really talking about that. That's where the pressure is coming from in a lot of ways, and especially with gambling, which, you know, you can't believe what players are copying when they lose a match. So so things are very different to when, to when I played obviously, and, and, and social media is a massive factor that's causing extra pressure on athletes because it's 24-7. Yep. It's 24-7. Yep, for sure. And I think we're all in unison in, in, uh, in, in saying or repeating that we, we certainly hope that uh, Naomi can, um, I guess, get the help that, that she needs and address those issues because tennis will undoubtedly be poorer for her absence. But some, I guess her not being there, Paul, really kind of does... I think open up at least the bottom half of, of the women's draw a little bit. So just before we do ask you about uh, Sue Wei, can you give us maybe a, a winner on the WTA and a winner on the ATP? Well, I mean, you're talking about it was always going to be more open whichever half Naomi was in because she hasn't got the record on clay. It's the same as the half that Medvedev's in as number two seed was always going to be the weaker <laughs> half, right? I mean, yep. that's just the way it is. So Sitsipas, I think, is going to roll through. Yeah, roll through the bottom half, and then we're likely to get Nadal and Djokovic in the semi. You never pick against Nadal ever, ever on clay, unless you yeah. you're a very brave person. If you ever do, <laughs> um, you just don't do that. So I pick him to win the tournament, um, but he'll have to play better than he did last night. He didn't play that well, to be honest. And I think, but you pick him in every match he plays on clay until he loses. Rolling grass, and then you're going to say, Okay, next year you don't pick him, but you're a brave person to pick against Nadal and Clay because he is the greatest grandmaster of clay because he has everything he has, he has everything on offense, everything on defense you need on a clay court. He plays the angles, he can disguise his drop shots forward and backhand. He's got the wide lefty serve on the big points, which is such an advantage, unfair advantage left handers have. Um, <laughs> he's got the best shot in every match he goes into. He's got the best shot in the history of tennis, his forehand. Um, he can dominate with that shot anytime, any match on clay. And that's why you've got to pick Nadal and until he loses. If he loses this year, I, I may not pick him next year, okay? But he hasn't lost. I mean, last year's final, everyone was saying Djokovic. There's no way. For me, there was no way. There was no way. I mean, in a big match, when Rafa's pride's on the line, the honour of clay is on the line. It'd be like me losing a pack cash on clay, you know? 
No. It's <laughs> the honour of the court. It's that honour. You're defending. And I did what I played in. So that's the deal. You go with Rafa. On the women's side, you know, for me, it was Schwantek or, uh, or Ash. 50-50. If it was fast conditions, I was going with Ash because she beat in Madrid in faster conditions. You've got a way better serve, way better slice. But now she's a little bit injured. Uh, you know, I've, I've got to jump off. I mean, we have to jump off because she's not she's not 100%. She's admitted that. So that's the sad thing. So now um, it's going to be tougher. Tougher to beat uh, the defending champ, Igor Schwantek, who, um, I mean... There are ways to get to her, um, which Ash could, but first strike tennis, the others play. She's just better at that. So I think she's better than Sabalenka and the others at that game. Serena's, Serena could be in trouble tonight. Yep. Yep. I think so. And yeah, it's, uh, look, we, Joel and I both picked Ash before the tournament. We do, and look, with the injury, it does make things a bit difficult, but. She was okay last night with the injury, but yeah, uh, backing up for seven matches, I'm not sure. But And then, yeah, Stefano Tsitsipas looks probably the obvious one to go uh, to the final down the bottom half of the men's draw oh, yeah. as well. So we echo those sentiments there as well. Rafa and Ash, uh, and uh, probably... So who was the 100% pick for the women, Paul? Was it Sviontek or was it Sabalenka or was it anybody else? Well, 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 I'm picking Schwantek yeah. to win now, yeah. but I, for me, I was I was yeah. divided between Ash and Schwantek, who, yeah. who I kind of called the dual defending champions yeah. because they both won last time they played there. Yeah. And as I said, fast conditions, I was going with Ash. Slow yeah, conditions, right. I go with Schwantek. With Schwantek, because I don't think Ash is going to last seven matches yeah. um, going in with an injury, and uh, she struggled against Pera last night. I mean, to be honest, Pera's third set was her worst set. But, Pera played well in the first set and lost it. She played well in the second set and won it. She played poorly yes, in the did. third set. That was why Ash won. I mean, Ash was, you know, that was, you know, Pera. And Pera was hitting her off the court a little bit. Mm. So Ash wasn't moving great. So, yeah, I, I, I didn't like a bit of what I saw last night, to be honest. Yep, very interesting going forward for Ash Barty. Before we do let you go, Paul, I want to ask you about Suwei Shea. Um, what a revelation she is. She had such a good run at the Australian Open to get to the quarterfinals in singles, in doubles. You've coached her to world number one as well. And she's developed over the years into such uh, such a, a joyous player to watch. And what makes her such a quality player in your eyes from someone that's coached her and from someone that's been inside her camp? Because she is one of the, she brings a smile to your face every time you watch her play. Yeah, yes, and she, she's completely unconventional because she never used to train as hard as the other girls or focus as much as the other girls. And um, she was she, she's always been a free spirit. Um, so kind of I had to get my head around the challenges of coaching someone who, who sometimes would just sit down and not practice <laughs> after first ball. You know, miss hits one ball, that's it. I'm done. I'm, I'm not feeling it. <laughs> I'm not feeling it today. You know, she went three years. I mean, I, I told this story during the Australian Open and it went, kind of went a bit viral, but, it, you know, he, she was playing at Eastbourne, playing um, Pavlyuchenkova, who, who Isla's playing tonight, and tough match for Isla. It's a good match. That's a really good women's match tonight, Tom Lanovich and Pavlyuchenkova. She's playing at Eastbourne, and Suway, she, I swear she missed a ball by one metre over the baseline, which she never does. If she misses, it's by this much. 
because she's laser-like accuracy, both sides, both directions, both sides. Gee, that's strange. She overhit that ball. Next, next, next point, hits another ball a metre, two metres over the base. I'm going, what's going on? This is, what's going on? And then she played the next point. I realised, she never realised, she was playing with a broken string. I mean, <laughs> she, she was playing with a broken string. That's why she was winning the balls. But, you know, every player knows when you break a string, right? But she, you know why she didn't know? She hadn't broken a string for three years. I'd been coaching for three years and never saw her break a string. At Roland Garros, I had 31 restrings in the first week. 31 restrings in the first week. That was a record. Because I'm ripping that heavy Western forehand, right? I love it if you break a string because it means you're playing heavy, right? You, you rip, you're ripping the hell out of the strings, that, 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 that friction, right? You, you can smell it. it. The smoke, you can actually smell it, right? Believe it or not. <laughs> and, and, and Sue Wade break. I mean, I had, I had coached her for three years. She had never broken a string. She did not know what it was like to break a string. She just kept playing with the racket, right? You know, that's an insight into what, what I was dealing with there. Um, but she's a magic player that has complete control. Her, her, rack, her hand-eye and her racket skills are extraordinary. I mean, she also, Suwei, she can't tell the difference between grass, clay or hardcore. <laughs> that must irritate you with clay. None of the same. I had a court at home for a while, and then it was a fast synthetic grass because it looked good. I mean, the house had that. I, you know, you know, <laughs> didn't spend the money changing the clay, but then we sold the house, right? But if it was clay, I wouldn't have probably. But um, she warm on that up on that before on hardcore playing at the Australian Open. I said, "So wait, you can't you can't warm up in this court. It's nothing like the Australian Open court. Nothing like it." It. She said. Well, it feels the same to me. <laughs> it's so quick, this synthetic grass. I couldn't, I couldn't hit a ball on the strings with this court, right? And she's going, it feels the same to me. It's fine. This court's fine, right? So, so for her, her, her hand-eye was so good that she doesn't matter to what court she's on, what the speed is, what surface is. It's all the same for her. Now, that's unusual. Yeah, she's she's a great player to watch. It's so much fun watching her. It was so much fun watching her at the Australian Open this year. I know, I know. Yeah, it's amazing. She went down last night in a super tough match with um with with the Chinese number Quing Quing Quang yeah. Wang, who's coached by Kashi. Um, so yeah, that that's that, and it was an unbelievably tough match, seven five in the third. So mm-hmm. that was it. But she's got she's got doubles tonight. Which I'm tuning into after this yeah. podcast because she's playing with uh, Mer- you know Elise Mertens. They're the number one seeds. They've done it rough the last couple of weeks, so they need to get get a win tonight to get going. So they're the number one seeds in the double. So, and she's won Roland Garros uh, doubles with Peng Shui. So, um, which was great for me because I never Pete Macker and I never got to win Roland Garros. And so I, I coached a player to do it. Um, it's not the same as. As Landel coaching Andy Murray when Wimbledon has fixed up his CV, but for my humble CV, it mattered. Okay, 
after Paul, they had met it. Well, Paul, your CV is one that many, many would envy. <laughs> a two-time Davis Cup champion, um, former doubles world number one, singles world number 24, as I said, um, semi-finalist at the Australian Open, an absolute superstar of tennis in this country. And I love what you're doing with the book. We love what you're doing with the book, getting Clay back into the mainstream of Australian tennis. It's what we need in this country. We need to get back on top at Roland Garros. Ash Barty's going to going to lead the forefront of that charge, but you are right there with her, mate, with this book, and it's absolutely fantastic. And thank you for sharing your clay court journey, your clay court love with us here on the show tonight because it's been a pleasure to listen to. Thanks, Paul. Thanks, Val. Thanks, Joel. Yeah, my pleasure. Paul McNamee joining us there on Breakpoint Podcast. Jeez, that was an enthralling chat, Joel. I, and as I said at the start of the, the interview, that I was never a massive fan of clay watching it, but now I've come to appreciate it over the years and you speak to tennis coaches and um, media members alike and they all love watching it because of just the sheer problem solving and it makes their life more challenging and they relish that challenge as a coach and they relish it as a player as well and the passion in which Paul speaks about it is is just awesome you really feed off that don't you <laughs> yeah I love the way that, uh, that that Paul speaks about clay and um, you know especially because as we we did sort of talk about quite a bit in that interview uh, is that there's really not a lot of clay uh, to be played on in, in Australia. But tell you what, I mean, Paul should be a real estate agent because he could sell absolutely anything, I reckon, just with the way that he talked to, the way that he talked about clay and, and just, oh, just, I mean, I've admittedly never played on, on play on Monte Carlo all the time. So just the way that he talks about clay with just so much enthusiasm, like it's just, it's just so, um, it's just so like, so contagious. I want to just go out and play on clay now. Yeah, so do I. Do you want to just let's just break lockdown. Let's go find. Let's go to the clay courts at Melbourne Park. We jump the fence and let's go. I don't care anymore. Let's do it, Joel. Um, but no, no. In all seriousness, yeah, let's and, not. Let's and not you're get using, you're using using the word contagious or infectious. No pun intended whatsoever. I was just uh, <laughs> just just using the euphemism. <laughs> no, exactly right. Well, one day we will get to Roland Garros, and one day the one tournament I do want to watch is is Monte Carlo. That's the one that I that I'm desperate to get to, but. Um, look, it is time, Joel, for our Benoit of the Week, our favourite segment on this show. And there's so many to choose from, so many that have had good weeks, that have had bad weeks, that have had a bit, a little bit of both. But who is it this week? And look, there's one obvious standout for me, and I don't know if it's the same as yours, but I'm thinking from our discussions today that you may be going uh, in uh, in this direction too. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, as you say, Val, there was really only one uh, positive um, to be honest, and I oh, won't contend for Ben Moore. And it, it is a positive, um, and it's uh, Carlos Suarez Navarro, who, um, of course, as we know, in the past couple of years, she's had really the the fight of her life. Um, you know, hasn't been very well, been battling, um, been battling illness, um, but she's overcome it, and she's back on the tennis court, and it's it's just fantastic to see. We know that um, obviously she's been around tennis for quite a while, um, and she's just such a, a universally liked. Um, player, so it was good to see her back and um, and competing um, on on the clay. Unfortunately for her, couldn't quite get the job done um, against uh, Sloane Stevens uh, three six seven six six four. Uh, so a good win there for for Sloane, but she was certainly made to, to work for it by um, by Carla, who uh, really is is now one of the uh, I guess the elder statesmen of of the WTA. But it's uh, it's it's great to see that um, she bounced back from that and, and she's still kicking on. Yeah, exactly right, and it, it's so good. And we we saw the ATP and the WTA both release some um, videos from all the different heavyweight players and saying how happy they are and how thrilled they are for Carlos Suarez Navarro to come back 
and be back on the court um, in uh, in Rolling at Rolling Garros than they saw at Madrid and and practicing and it, it's just fantastic as cancer. We've spoken a lot about insidious diseases on this show over the last year, Joel, with COVID, but cancer still trumps yeah. it. And it's just an absolutely abhorrent thing that we just need to get rid of. And if we can find a cure, that's fantastic. And we just need to get rid of it. So it's so good to see that Carla Suarez Navarro is back out there playing and um, her felt, hopefully her farewell to her is successful. But that's about all we've got time for on the show tonight, Joel. We've got a big week and a half of Roland Garros to come and a big week of lockdown to come and watch Roland Garros as well. So let's look forward to that. But just before we do let you go, let's reiterate your picks for the French. Uh, yeah, so on the on the women's side, I'm kind of going really with what, with what Paul said. I'm kind of a little bit less optimistic about Ash's chances. You know, I did watch a match against Bernardo Pera and she didn't have it all her own way. As Paul did say, um, Bernardo actually did play quite well. Um, I guess it's a testament to Ash, though, that she didn't really play her best tennis and she still managed um, to find a way. But, um, yeah, leaning a little bit towards a final between Igor Fiontek and Arena Sabalenka. I think Arena's in terrific form. Um, and she's really the one to beat from the bottom half. So I might run with with Eager. Uh, I'm not sure if lightning strikes twice, but anyway, I guess we'll find out in approximately a week and a half. Um, and look on the on the ATP, it's on the ATP side. It's really really difficult to look past Rafa as it always is at Roland Garros. But uh, my my head says Rafa, but. Hart is saying Stefanos Tsitsipas. I really want to see a new champion. Not only Roland Garros, but I just want to see a new champion overall. I want to see, I want to see a fresh face win, um, win a slam. Obviously, we saw Dominic Team last year um, at the US Open. I want that to continue. I think we, we need we need to keep seeing new winners. Yeah, no, we definitely do. And uh, Dominic Team's experienced a bit of a hangover in terms of like a Gabinia Muguruza type hangover. If you listen to us back in 2015 when she did win her first major, but um, yeah, I, I do hope that we can see a new winner. Um, my heart still always says Roger. I know that my heart is 100% wrong and he's got no chance of winning it. But um, I would love to see <laughs> Roger salute because he's the saviour we all need right now in uh, in lockdown. But no, I do think Rafa over Tsitsipas in the final. Um, I think we're going to get to see a rematch of what happened in Barcelona, uh, of what, what happened in Barcelona. Um, <laughs> what happened? What happened in Monte Carlo? Happened in Monte Carlo? What happened in Barcelona? Happened in Barcelona? <laughs> And uh, now we're in Rome. Um, I didn't think that was... That wasn't too bad, actually. Um, that was but, pretty impressive, though. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to take that one, actually. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll try and remix it. Um, but yeah, so on the women's side, I'll <laughs> stick with Ash. I've gone with her this, this hard so far. I'll stick with her. Maybe she'll work her way into the tournament. I don't know. Um, she still is in some pretty good form to beat Bernardo Pera, who's no slouch, as Paul said. Played a poor third set, but... We'll see what Ash can do in terms of her recovery. So we know that she's a fighter and we'll see how she goes. But Joel, that's all we do have time for. Thank you very much for joining me again. It's been an absolute pleasure as per usual. Yeah, always a pleasure, mate. Never a chore. Enjoy RG and see you next week. Same to you, mate. And we'll see you then. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter at Breakpoint Pod, Instagram, Breakpoint Podcast. Uh, what's the other one? Facebook, Breakpoint Pod 1 at Breakpoint Pod 1. I forgot that for a sec because... Facebook's slowly becoming a little bit more obsolete than the other ones, but 
uh, we still use that as well. And remember, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and on Wooshka as well. And you can listen on the Live Tennis app. Download that on the App Store. Just search Live Tennis and follow them on Twitter at Live Tennis, T-N-N-S, not with the I. So uh, give them a follow as well. It's been Val Febo and Joel Frucci talking all things Roland Garros and Clay. Big thank you to Paul McNamee for joining us on the show. Enjoy the French Open. We'll catch you next week.